Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this Mon steaming Monday edition of The Daily Friend, the long version, the live version. And I have with me, and I would like to welcome my two wise elders of the IRR. Um, let's go to, better go to the big boss. John Andrus, welcome. You have been moving, but you have moved sufficiently to get your um, internet up and running. Yes, so thank you very much. You might hear some noises in the background. Uh, there's work being done around the house, but we are in the new place and uh, soon we'll have a new backdrop as well. Well, uh, noise, I'll raise you some jackhammers and, and angle grinders. Michael, <laughs> I hope it's quiet on your side. It is, it is quieter, uh, Sarah, and always a delight to join you. Uh, great, great to see you too, um, John. As you can see, uh, I am filling in for the esteemed Nicholas Lorimer. So let's get ahead because there is nothing quiet and serene about our politics ever, ever. So let's start. And we're going to start with a senior Volkswagen executive uh, who's involved in cost, global cost-cutting strategy said on Friday. He was, quote, very worried, close quote, about the future of the company's operations in South Africa. Um, and facing persistent power cuts and logistics snarl-ups, and I wonder which port, ports, railways he might be referring to in that respect. Um, he's also said that the company's Volkswagen passenger car brand is in the midst of defining the key measures of a global scheme to boost its flagging margins. The first in a series of saving, savings drives aimed at improving group profitability and staying competitive in the transition to electric vehicles. Now, this is a car maker that has been in South Africa for nearly 80 years. John, is this the beginning of the end of the big car companies in South Africa? It could be, Sarah. Um, I think what we tend to underestimate is to what degree we are exposed to um, global competition within multinationals. So if you're in corporate head office uh, of Volkswagen and Wolfsburg, you've got a map of the world behind your desk and it's got all your various production locations. And each of these locations has to justify its place on that map. So we are competing against Mexico, Brazil, uh, probably uh, maybe Slovakia, uh, various other places around the world as well. Plus also Volkswagen is under a lot of pressure at the moment because of this transition to electric vehicles. So Tesla is growing very fast. Some Chinese electric car manufacturers are growing very fast. Volkswagen feels like it's missed the boat a bit. And so they're now rushing to catch up. So they're feeling the pressure. And they're looking at their big map with the various production places and they're seeing South Africa down there. And they say, you know, every day we look at this place, there's red lights flashing. Like we can't get our, our, our cars out from South Africa because the ports aren't working or the railways aren't working. Our production keeps being interrupted because of load shedding or we have to invest extra money in order to keep production going. It's adding to our costs. Uh, our labor relations might not be quite as smooth as we would like. And all of these things add up together. Plus then also if you've got a policy environment where the government makes it kind of tricky for you to invest, it doesn't make things easy for you, you really do ask yourself the question as one of those head honchos in the big head office whether you should keep the, the site going or not. Now, adding to that, these investments are very, very large investments. You know, so to, if you want to mm. build a car factory, it's you know millions and billions, not only of rands, but also of euros. It's very, very expensive. Mm. So ultimately, you really don't want to leave, right? You've got all that money sunk into the plant. You've trained people. You've got the established history. You want to stay in that location. And for you to even uh, start to talk about wanting to leave 
is a sign, I think, of quite great distress and, and concern about the way things are going. So for this executive to have spoken up um, is a, a warning signal to us as a country. And we really hope that the, the government will take it seriously because this is a, a serious sign. Sarah. I think one of the, um, I mean, sort of, if you could sort of commit economic suicide more than once, um, this would be event number 35 because You've, you're not only dealing with all the factors you've mentioned, but there also a lot of the car companies are are situated geographically in areas that without them, they would be completely and utterly impoverished. I mean, there would be absolutely nothing to, no, no employment to live off. Um, and it just, Michael, I think it just goes to show that if you start doing one thing wrong or you take your eye off the ball or you corrupt something, it, it's almost like it is a domino effect. Everything gets affected. Everything gets corrupted. So whether it's a it's a series of bad policies, which ultimately will lead to certain business disadvantages, and then plus corruption or preferential procurement, cutting you off or cutting you out or increasing the cost of doing business. It's it's. I mean, the car companies. It's it's almost like you know somebody's got to switch off the lights once they've gone. Because will anyone be left? Indeed, indeed. Um, and just before dealing with the particular case of VW, I was immediately reminded, especially as you were speaking now about our, our, the, the general conditions in which the economy is functioning and our politics is functioning, I was reminded of a, a very concise um, line in, in Jonathan Katzen-Ellenbergen's piece uh, last week on the Harvard report, the report by the a very significant uh, grouping of, of, of academics at Harvard looking at the South African economy and politics and identifying all the things that we constantly identify as being uh, exactly what's the matter. And Jonathan had this short line, and I think it sums up uh, a lot of what you've, you've just been referring to. At their root, the causes for our economic demise are political. And it comes down to those policy choices. One after the next, the, the effect is compounding. It's an accumulating impact. We're going to deal with one of them uh, in, in, in one of the latest stories in, in, in this show. But I think here we see in the, you know, at the coalface where a company is actually operating in, an, in this kind of environment, it reaches a point where it's in a crisis. Um, and there you know, just two phrases that, that um, Thomas Schaefer the VW brand chief uh, used um, in describing VW's, you know, dealing with this, grappling with this crisis. He says, eventually you have to ask, why are we building cars in a less competitive factory somewhere far away from the real market where the consumption is? I'm very worried about it. We are not in the business of charity. And quite right. That's absolutely right. He's identifying exactly what the problem is. That too many South Africans, too many parties in South Africa, political politicians and so on, members of the cabinet have always kind of assumed that the business is here to serve them somehow, serve the country, do us favors. It isn't that isn't how it works. It's a relationship, mm. it's got to work, it's a, a you know, vibrant economy. One thing I want to also touch on, which I think is very significant, and John brought it up too, is the the uh, the shift towards uh, electric vehicles and the, the, that whole kind of green economy we we, we differ with many of the the, the underlying rationale of of the whole kind of climate change debate but i think it's it's undeniable that this is where 
the free market is moving, it's where banking is moving, it's where people want to be, <clears throat> and we have to be ready for that. We, we And we have, remarkably, we have the mines, we have the, the minerals, mm. lithium and cobalt. I think, uh, I think uh, Mr. Schaefer draws attention to this. But what we have standing in the way of all these, uh, the, the, the potential to exploit this opportunity is exactly the um, the policy environment. It's mining law. It's all the all the restrictions there. It's labour. Um, it's it's property rights. These are the things which we need to really wake up and address, or else we'll miss this opportunity. Which in fact was also flagged by the Harvard the Harvard report. Opportunity Harvard report, to yeah. make South Africa kind of hub of 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 new technology. Um, John, it strikes me that one of the pro perhaps one of the problems with the government sort of allowing allowing this to happen eventually is that business has been, as business tends to be, fairly conservative and willing to sort of take what the government gives for an inordinate long, long, and, and for long longer than the we as individuals will take it. In other words, you've got a powerful grouping becoming critical possibly when by the time it's too late. In other words, the damage has been done. Everyone else in the world where they have markets is becoming more competitive and, and there's just no way. We can't, we can't change things fast enough anymore, even if they're changed. So I think the, the role of business is good to highlight in this, in this discussion. Uh, and I think one of the possibly underestimated critical moments in South African history was when Des Van Royen was appointed as the finance minister and uh, the, the banks appeared in the president's office and said, so far and no further, we refuse to accept this. The president backed down and we got a different finance minister and it showed, I think, the power of the business community, which it is uh, all too seldom willing to deploy. I do wonder whether there is a bit of a shift going on in the mindset in the business community. We see it in some companies, not so much others. Uh, but some, I think, are becoming a bit uh, harder uh, in the way that they deal with the government. And I think that is absolutely appropriate at the stage of the game. So one hopes that more companies will do that uh, and, and uh, engage in far more robust discussions and negotiations with the government. Sarah. Well, I'm sure we'll, I'm sure we'll, we will welcome that. Um, robust is, 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 a, is a very positive word. Uh, in, in in the climate, um, I think what the, I think one of the problems is that generally business kind of forgets that as in life, relationships are based on power and power swings, and uh, the uh, the business community might have let it swing a little bit uh, too far. But not unrelated is <coughs> was a really interesting article in the Sunday Times by Mike Saluma, who is their deputy editor, and it was talked about this the Harvard. Um, growth Lab report and the constraints holding our economy back and reviving the perennial issue of transformation. And so the issue then became is, for him, is what comes first, the imperative to transform the economy or the urgency to fix and grow it? Now, I would say, uh, Michael, that the two go hand in hand. There's no, you don't put one for, before the other. They, 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 they go, in fact, if you look to fix the economy, transformation will happen faster and more effectively. 
Mm, mm. I think that that's that's absolutely right. And as we were discussing um, before the the show began, one of the points that I feel particularly strongly about is that it's a profitable business that has the most capacity to be transformative. That that is actually what a transformative business is. It's one that is making money, that's succeeding, that is employing people, that's paying more tax, that's generating other downstream business, and so on. Um, it's one that is untrammeled, that is being able to exploit the fullest extent of its own dynamism, its technological innovation, uh, innovation in, in branding, in producing things, in whatever it might be, whatever its field happens to be. As long as it's untrammeled and it's capable of being allowed to make money and succeed, that is having a tremendously uh, transformative effect um, on, on a, an economy. And I think that's a point to make uh, before we get into some of the detail about what Mike Salimi is saying, is that this is especially so, I think, for an economy that has a legacy of exclusion, that has a legacy of, of whatever you want to call it, inequality or disadvantage, and a desperate need for growth. This is one of the key things the IRR keeps, keeps saying. Growth is the only possible where, uh, path out of the crisis we're in um, and it's exactly for these reasons that um, that instances like this with senior journalists like Mike Salumi, very experienced guy, my kind of generation I think um, is you know, has the, the courage first of all but also the, the kind of ability to think through things afresh uh, and he's giving permission I think to in the sense he's, he's allowing people to begin to talk about this in a way that they might not have been able to um, uh, five or six years ago. Um, I think that that terrible I've written about it before nodding almost somnolent uh, 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 unanimity of so much of the intelligentsia. I think that's gone out of the way. Uh, thankfully, it's people are now being challenged. You can't simply support race-based transformation and think that you're going to be applauded because you're going to have somebody like Mike Salima saying, but are you right? And people like mm -hmm. us, obviously, we, we've been doing it all along. But I think it's significant that you've got this, this um, a, a very positive shift into an environment where we're asking questions about quite fundamental things um, and of course the other the, the, the third point um, which I think is so important and again it relates very much to the position that we've taken for a long time is that uh, I think he refers to um, this argument does not nullify the need for redress and, and it's a shameful fact that the, the redress that was necessary has actually been deferred by the ANC it hasn't been addressed in, in the least it's been deferred mm. for 30 years they had mm. three decades to actually get tackled and we've for years offered them uh, the blueprint and it's the mm. economic development for the disadvantaged uh, economic empowerment for the disadvantaged and it's a, a very very thoroughly thought through uh, process that addresses education health care housing um, and 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 how to uh, incentivize business actually to mm. be part of this process and it removes race entirely from the equation. So it focuses where the need is. And should the need not be there, the, the, the policy would not be necessary. This is fundamental mm -hmm. to a rational approach to addressing the kind of economy we've inherited and the kind of economy we want to create. So I think a very significant story. And um, yeah, I think so too. Yeah, I think so too. I think the, I mean, one of the things he does, and which indicates a sort of a little bit of pandering towards the show, say his older his old audience on BEE, is he he, mm. he says that perhaps the, the word transformation is a swear word to the the white and historically privileged 
And it is a swear word, but it's a swear word because it's, it says everything and nothing. Um, it promises wow. a huge amount, and the, the ANC uses, has used it to the point where it just doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, yeah. I, I would much prefer using the word change because, it's, A, it's not as sort of idealistically aspirational, and, B, hmm. that's really what it's about. It's about change, and yeah. change <laughs> happened and then stopped happening and then reversed. And that's, that, to me, is, 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 is what is, is, is what's indicative of what needs to change in this discussion. And I think his, Mike Saluma being one of those people who's, who's making those noises is crucially important to the society. Mm. What's, John, your comments generally, and what's your sense of someone like him particularly having an impact on the debate of getting people writing articles in, in the Sunday Times saying BE is a huge problem and those writers are not necessarily white. I mean, that's super interesting because I think a week or two ago, I had a dinner with a prominent advocate who I couldn't quite convince, I think, to uh, give up uh, his support for BE and similar policies. Uh, I think I got close, so maybe over time we'll get there. But one of the challenges he posed to me, he said, you know, which prominent black person is saying that BE should be scrapped? And he you know, was sort of thinking there's not a single one. And I said, well, there are some, uh, but they're usually not mm -hmm. mainstream. You know, there's, it, it still positions you as an outsider, I think, to make this argument as, as is happening with, with Mike Saluma. I'm hoping that over time that becomes more and more the case as the fatal results of the policies we've tried so far become clearer and clearer. And what I detect also in, in, in Mike Saluma's really interesting piece is the uh, uncertainty and nervousness that is brought about by the argument that emergent orders solve problems. So in mm. other words, what, what our Michael, Michael Morris was, was saying just now is, you know, you can absolutely get transformation and look at countries like India or China, you know, based on, on rapid economic growth, you know, mm. a, a country can change within a generation beyond all recognition. Mm. And that can happen mm. here as well. Mm. But it is a bit scary, the notion of having to let go control of the process. So, mm. you know, from the government's point of view, let's say, but, you know, you're saying it's going to work out fine if we liberate the, uh, liberalize the economy and the labor mm. market and let businesses operate, then this transformation will happen somehow. But we actually don't feel comfortable trusting the process that this will be the mm. result. We are worried that it's not going to happen. And therefore, we want mm. to hold on to the process and sort of tell companies how they must racially change their mix um, because we're scared that it won't work otherwise. The thing is mm. that by now we're at a point where we can say, look, your, your tightly controlled process has not produced the result that you want. As Mike Saluma points out, there's a small group of people, uh, black people, who have benefited from the EE, mm. and they are typically the ones who uh, reply to us when we call for it scrapping, and they say, how can you say this? You know, my, my family, myself, we would not have been in this position without these policies. But the point is precisely that there are maybe 85% or more of black people who have not benefited and as a, as a matter of fact are much worse off because of these policies and they are the ones deserving of our attention and the attention of the government in terms of the policy mix that is introduced in order to address um, their, their problems so mm. the argument here is you, you have to let go of control you have to uh, believe in, in spontaneous ordering and emergent orders coming out of the process that is what 
um, I think free markets have shown to be able to provide across the world wherever they've been allowed to operate freely. This will work in South Africa as well, but you do need to, to yeah. have that leap of faith to say, okay, I'm going to let yeah. go uh, of the process, let the economy grow and trust that the transformation will yeah. come. That's a tough thing to do, but hopefully more and more people yeah. are now at the point where they are willing to try that, Sarah. Uh, Michael, John raised an interesting point because we've talked extensively about China and India and they are proof of market liberalization and the successes it brings. They're also part of BRICS, and South Africa is invested heavily emotionally and ideologically in its membership of BRICS and in having recently hosted the uh, the summit here. And there's nothing that I can think of often that is follows the, the ANC's model anywhere else that has worked or showed it's worked by comparison. Um, so it's like, you know, how, how you can take a horse to water, but... You know, even China and India haven't been able to make them drink. How, 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 <laughs> yeah. what, what do we get over? What do we have to do to get them to see that, even in their own favoured sphere economically of economics and, and and groupings, they have been they are proved wrong essentially. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean as John emphasizes, you know, the if 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 we sustain this focus on the eighty percent of people who are, for thirty years have not benefited from a thing that was designed to, to uplift them, to give them the better life for all, you know, that that very clever slogan of nineteen ninety four, and that now rings so tragically hollow for for so many millions of people. Um, as long as we as we do at the IRR, but other people are also beginning to do this, to point to these people and say, here are the, the, the people who have been failed by policy and something better has to happen. Um, and these other, it's a, it's a good point. You know, we point to these other countries and, and, and they are demonstrable instances of the success of the very thing that we are, that we are talking about. Um, I think John's also right that it is a kind of leap of faith. Um, Certainly, from the the RR policies alternatives position or perspective, the, the the one great example of the of, of the non racial application of a key um, policy that we see playing out month after month is, of course, the SASA grants that, that are mm. that are uh, delivered on a purely non racial basis. So it's, it, we're not actually suggesting something wildly revolutionary, or <laughs> or uh, you know, it's, it's not it's not going to. Um, be something entirely novel and, and, and different for South Africans. It is something that does actually work. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll have to see how voters how voters respond to all these things, but it will ultimately come down to people making up their own minds and, and, uh, and choosing differently, choosing a different policy bouquet to, to uh, and, deliver and, what and they And not want. being offended with the ANC calls us counter-revolutionaries. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that's a, that's a badge of honor. Yeah, that's, yes, you know, let's, let's, yeah. Luto continues, as they say. Now, yes. the, quite a detailed article, but perhaps just going to the extremes of what the markets can do. And this, again, is reflective of failed policy, um, the failed realization of, of policing and dealing with crime and prosecuting that crime. And that are the extraordinary actions of construction mafia in Cape Town that 
literally on behalf of their boss who's who's now awaiting trial for murder together with his wife, I think, um, basically put up a video saying to the city council, you know, give us your business or else. I mean, I'm putting it, you know, a, a, a little simply. But essentially that was it. They were saying, you know, you're not doing the right thing by the people, like yeah. they are representative people, and we want your construction contracts. Um, it's the most, it's 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 the most extraordinary thing I've ever. Uh, well, no, no, um, nothing's extraordinary. The most extraordinary thing I've ever seen in South Africa. But it's basically um, while the gang boss is sort of out of commission, the the the, the acolytes or the two RCs or whatever one calls them in that area have literally threatened. Um, people involved at a municipal and uh, level, in fact, just down the corridor from Jordan Hill Lewis, the mayor's office, saying, you know, give us a business or uh, things won't look so comfortable for you. And this came literally not a week after one of the council officials was murdered near one of the sites that they're working on. So, um, John, what do we do with these guys? I mean, you know, is this is this the only way you can do business is by literally pulling out a gun and threatening to destroy somebody's family if they don't give them the business that, that the businesses themselves have worked so hard to develop and employ people who need the employment. I mean, it's just astonishing. Mm, it really is. And um, what underlies it is the fact that in a way the government itself is involved in the protection racket because it mm. promises to allow you to go about your business unmolested and keep you and your property safe in return for your implied contract you pay your taxes you know you, you elect your government in a democracy and in return you'll be able to you know operate safely and this is now effectively the gangs muscling in on the turf of the government and it will have fatal consequences for South Africa's economy if they are allowed to prevail. So Cape Town and the Western Cape is probably one of the jurisdictions where we have greater faith that the state will push back hard against this and not allow itself to be uh, deprived of this really essential role in an economy. But in the rest of the country, I'm not so sure. So in the Western Cape uh, and Cape Town, what I would expect to happen is that the uh, authorities will not negotiate that they will not agree to uh, to the terms that these uh, bandits uh, oppose uh, and that they will push back and not, not comply. The rest of the country, not so sure. And this is going to broaden the gap between the Western Cape and Cape Town and the rest of the country if, uh, if, if the Western Cape prevails and the rest of the country does not. Sarah. I was just waiting for my hardy dolls to... Mm. Uh, talk about, talk about your... gang war. Talk about gang warfare. You know. Is this your? Uh, yeah. Sorry, um, how did I, Sarah? <laughs> 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 yeah, they're not. They're not. They're not very. Uh, shall we say, uh, um, obedient. Um, I just. I just saw. <laughs> I, I mean, here you have a group. I, I actually found what I'm looking for. Is the video? It was titled. Put on the G4. D's web's Facebook page. This is the company entitled for firm warning to the mayor. I mean, and they are seen confronting the poor official during a protest in Mitchell's plane and referring to the incident in February, i.e. 
you know, the murder of this woman and and their confrontation of him. Um, Michael, it's what's really worrying is we we've also just looked at the recent striking off the role of the case against Angela Coco, who is the CEO and um, uh, sort of very high position before that of ESCOM. I mean, here's this huge anti this huge corruption case. Um, yeah. We are desperate to see somebody at some level convicted, yeah. you know, provided the evidence is, is, is provided. And it's struck off because it's taken too long. The, the, the NPA hasn't been able to get it, get ready for it and hasn't been able to prosecute it timelessly. I mean, it can go back on the roll, but we keep hearing the same thing about the under-resourcing. Now, we know that the NPA is under-resourced and we know that it's full of people who are making their own lives difficult to undermine the NPA. But, you know, at some point, something has got to change. And I know at some point the, the private sector offered to give what assistance they could to make the NPA's life difficult, uh, sorry, difficult, easier. And if I don't know if something's come of it, it either hasn't worked or it hasn't happened. I'm not quite sure which. But, I mean, we've now heard that everyone but, and that includes the NPA, everyone but the VIP protection services is getting an increase on their budget. I mean, sorry to show sort of, you know, incomprehension, but you know, a few less blue light brigades, perhaps? Yeah, yeah, no, indeed. Um, and, and the, the point that you, you, you made and, and John's point, you know, that, that with the, the, the sort of decline in, in, the, in the, the, the standards, the efficacy of, of the fight against crime, which is a very serious problem generally in South Africa, but here in particular we see a, a particular kind of it, um, the, the greater legitimacy is actually lent to to um to, to criminal procedures because there are no consequences uh people get away with it on the one hand on the other hand you have the the implicit um legitimizing of this kind of stuff through the the 30 percent be uh, segment that's got to go to the local community so people read these things as a kind of permission to you know if they don't not getting the goodies they can, they're allowed to muscle in and and uh, and try and extract something for themselves. They're not going to be consequences. The cops won't be, won't be there. The cop, they won't they won't be charged. They won't you know and so on. So I think it is. It's a very dangerous thing. Um, it it you know it potentially becomes almost impossible for any business to to operate properly. It's the costs are mammoth. The extra costs of security. Uh, companies maybe just not even going for certain contracts because of the particular circumstances that lift the the risk level to an to an impossible high. Um, so it just all round, it's a very very bad thing. It ties in with everything else we've been speaking about. Mm, it's just one more consequence. I, I kind of made a, made a note of it earlier that as often happens, you know, we, we, we see in these shows the, the unignorable patterns of things that, that speak to politics, society, um, and, and to policy making uh, and, and the economy. And they all come together in stories like this one where uh, the consequences of the way we've allowed things to develop are coming home to roost and come home to roost at a very high cost. And just quickly, John, uh, to say that these the the threats were made in February, or as a consequence of what happened in February, and, they, and the police have been investigating it ever since. And policing is a national competence, not as it would appear. Surely something like this. I mean, the, you know, video evidence is wonderful. It answers a whole lot of questions immediately. So where are where are the where, where are the charges? 
yeah, good question. Um, and that really, I think, now we, we're going full circle in the sense that we started out with investment and VW being worried about the sustainability of their, their investment here. Mm. And, you know, mm. the really basic requirement for an investor is to know that their assets, that they can keep their assets, yeah. generate a profit and, you know, get the profit to, to wherever they need them to be. But if you have to live in fear of your assets being stolen, um, as well as your, your profits, then you're not going to invest in a jurisdiction like that. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I think I shall become wordless and end this esteemed elder wisdom event and show that we don't really have all the answers, but the RR certainly has some of them. And uh, hopefully your regular admired host, Mr. Lorimer, will be back in the chair for the rest of the week. Keep well and uh, hold tight. <laughs>